just a little more background on the speech. He had written a speech last September. He planned to give it on October 25th, but he had a stroke on October 24th, and it took away most of his power to speech. Of speech. But he kept hoping that somehow, some way, he could get the speech delivered, and he would practice it even with all his speech difficulties. He never got much beyond the first page, but he still was hoping that someday Christendom could hear this speech. Um, another story connected with it that I have to tell you, he worked a long time on this speech. It meant a lot to him because he always admired Christopher Columbus so much. And we were in the hospital about a week after he had the stroke, and we were going to say the rosary. And so he, we said, who would you like us to pray for? I said, who would you like us to pray for? And he was... He would say something, and then I'd ask 20 questions until I, I figured out what he was saying. And so a couple of his friends from college, he was always very concerned about their, their, their souls. And then he said something that I just couldn't understand. And so I said 20 questions. Is this someone you knew personally? Yes. Did you know him in Maine? No. Did I know him? No. Did you know him in California? No. Did you know him in Texas? No. And with all the places he'd ever been, I said, you, you're sure this is someone you knew personally, a personal friend of yours? Yes. Finally, I said, well, could you try to write it? Which was dicey because he couldn't write very well either and he wrote these two words and it looked like the first letter of each was a C and the only thing I could think of was Christopher Columbus and I said Christopher Columbus yes <laughs> I said, he's not a personal friend of yours <laughs> but I think he had worked so long on this that he really did feel that Christopher Columbus was a personal friend of his and so he wanted the names of all his friends to be written in the book of memories at, at All Saints Parish and so I said should I write Christopher Columbus's name in there too and he nodded, yes, Christopher Columbus' name was written in the Book of Memories, and I'm sure prayers for his soul were welcome. And this year, as a commemoration, I wrote Christopher Columbus's name again in the Book of Memories at All Saints. You can almost say the theme of this lecture is one of Dr. Carroll's favorite themes, which is one man can make a difference. And I would add to that, one woman can make a difference because of the role of Queen Isabel in this story. Columbus would not have been able to do what he did if it had not been for Queen Isabel. So one man and one woman making a difference. The lecture of Christopher Columbus. The year was 1492, and one man was about to make history with the most important voyage any seaman ever made. Beyond the unexplored Atlantic Ocean lay a new world, which he was to open up and reveal. 700 years earlier, the short-lived Mongol Empire had joined Europe and China by land, so that it was then possible to cross from one to the other. And an Italian merchant from Venice had gone there beholding the wonders and riches of the Orient. His name was Marco Polo, and he had written a book about it, which few believed because of the extraordinary wonders he described, which were in fact mostly accurate. The history maker who is our subject for tonight, whose name in Latin, the learned language of his day, was Christopher Columbus, believed Marco Polo. Columbus was a seaman trained by the Portuguese, the best seaman of his day, and he thought he could reach Marco Polo's Orient by sea, he corresponded with the famous Italian astronomer and geographer Toscanelli, who encouraged him by writing that such a voyage was possible. Columbus resolved to cross the Atlantic Ocean to reach the Orient, and in that fabulously wealthy land to obtain riches, to finance a crusade, to recover Jerusalem for Christendom. Before Columbus made his voyage, from his own sea experience, he had deduced that by using the prevailing winds he could cross the Atlantic from east to west before the trade winds, which blew in the south, and return further north before the westerlies. Last month, we commemorated that voyage. It is a national holiday in our country. The poet Joaquin Miller said memorably 
of that voyager of 1492. Behind him lay the gray Azores. Before him, not the ghost of shores. Before him, only shoreless seas. Columbus had no wealth of his own, so he had to find a wealthy patron to pay for his ships in his voyage. He went first to the king of Portugal, whose Prince Henry had begun the eastward surge of Europe in the 15th century. But the present king of Portugal, John II, turned him down because he knew that Columbus's estimate of the size of the world was totally wrong. The king knew, as every educated man had known since the ancient Greeks, that the world is round. The question was the length of a degree. Columbus had made the smallest purportedly scientific estimate of the length of a degree ever made by anyone, purposely distorting his data to make his enterprise seem more feasible. In fact, it was not feasible, for even with the caravel Prince Henry the Navigator had designed, Columbus could never have crossed the enormous waste of waters that would have stretched from Europe to the Orient had America not been there. He did have some evidence of land beyond the Atlantic Ocean and may have heard of a voyage to Iceland of the Norse explorations 400 years before, but all his hopes were focused on the Orient. On January 20, 1486, at the special request of Antonio Marchena, head of the Franciscan Monastery of La Rabida in Pilos on the south coast of Spain, who was a noted astronomer and cosmographer and had heard of Columbus's enterprise while Columbus was a guest at his monastery, Queen Isabel and King Fernando of Spain, to whom the Pope had given the title of the Catholic Kings, received Columbus, whom they had never met before, in an audience. Columbus explained his enterprise to them. Columbus and Queen Isabel were of exactly the same age, both born in 1451. They were very similar in appearance and character, though he lacked her calmness and unfailing good judgment of people. Both had strikingly fair skin, red hair, and blue eyes. Both were tall, strong in their bodily constitution, brilliant of mind, highly articulate, with a commanding presence, and striking personal attractions. Far more significant than any of this, both were profound, devoutly believing Catholics. That is why Queen Isabel trusted Columbus from the first. A spark was struck between Queen Isabel and Columbus on that cold January day in 1486, kindling a fire which she never allowed to go out. For the God they both loved and served so faithfully would use them both to change the world forever. Queen Isabel knew almost nothing of navigation, seamanship, world geography, or cosmography. So she could not herself judge the feasibility of Columbus's project. But she could judge the man, and she was one of the finest judges of men who ever lived. She saw before her a man who felt his enterprise to be a divine calling. Isabel, who had been very close to God all her life, was willing to believe that perhaps it was. Columbus had taken to himself the prophecy of the Roman writer Seneca in his Medea. Quote, an age will come after many years when the ocean will loose the chains of things and a huge land lie revealed, when Tiphius will disclose new worlds and Thule, the ancient name for Iceland, no longer be the ultimate. Many years later, Columbus's son Ferdinand was to proudly write a marginal notation on this passage. Quote, this prophecy was fulfilled by my father in 1492. Columbus's fascination with Seneca's prophecy is our only indication 
that Columbus thought he might discover a new world, though he did not know he had done so until 1498, when he came to the mouth of the huge Orinoco River in South America and saw that so large a river must come from a continent. In 1492, Isabel and Fernando had victoriously completed the longest war in the history of the world, the reconquest of all Spain from the Muslims or Moors, which had taken 770 years. This victory was signalized by the Christian capture of the last Moorish city in Spain, Granada. So important was this triumph to Queen Isabel that she told Columbus that she could do nothing for him until it was achieved. She recalled him to court in December 1491 and ordered a new review of his project, which now had influential support, notably from the Duke of Medina Celi and from Cardinal Mendoza, the new primate of Spain who was influenced by the Franciscan fires of the Monastery of La Rabida in southern Spain, where Columbus had resided. But Columbus had demanded that if he reached the Orient, as he was sure he would, that he be ennobled as Admiral of the Ocean Sea. The Spanish of that age had a strong prejudice against foreigners, and the Royal Council did not want to agree to this, especially since it was traditional that Castile, of which Isabel was queen, had only one admiral. Columbus would make two. For these unworthy reasons, Columbus's enterprise was rejected. After all, he was Genoese, not Spanish. Isabel rarely overrode her counsel, except on matters very close and important to her. Her initial response was to accept their verdict, unwelcome to her instincts though it was. So Columbus was told that his cause in Spain was lost. As soon as he could, probably within two or three days, he set out for France to appeal to its king to finance him. Christopher Columbus never gave up. But the arguments for supporting his venture were so strong, and the Royal Council's objections were so patently narrow-minded, that Columbus's friends made immediate and strongly worded appeals to the royal couple to change their minds. Isabel had always wanted to support Columbus, and now Fernando came over to her side. No doubt they all use these common sense arguments. The amount of money the navigator is asking for is comparatively small. The potential benefits are enormous. He agrees that he will get nothing if he finds nothing. But what if he succeeds and another country reaps the benefit? So Columbus was recalled when actually on the road some six miles from Granada. We would give much for a description, which we do not have, of the scene when the royal messenger doubtless riding a dashing charger, galloped up to the plodding mariner with his mule to tell him that his royal master and mistress had changed their minds and would send him on his world historic voyage after all. The human consequences of this last minute decision of Isabel and Fernando are so great as to be almost beyond calculation. Not only were the lives of millions and the destiny of nations shaped by it, it made Spain the greatest power in the world for a century to say nothing of opening America to European settlement. Even in the strictly material sense, its consequences were awesome. It has been calculated that for every Maravede, the Spanish money unit at the time, invested in Columbus's expedition, Spain got back in gold and silver alone from the mines found in the New World, a profit of 1,733,000. Ships were obtained for Columbus by remitting a fine which had been levied on the town of Palos for two caravels, called the Nina and the Pinta, 
while his three-masted flagship, the Santa Maria, was purchased by his friends and patrons at court. At first, the foreigner Columbus found it difficult to recruit sailors in Palos, but that changed when a well-known and respected local mariner, Martin Alonso Pinzon, agreed to be captain of the Pinta, and his brother Vicente took the Nina. Isabel's final decision to sponsor Columbus's enterprise, in which she was belatedly but fully supported by Fernando, was based not on geographic knowledge or economic calculation. By such standards, the decision was evidently wrong. But in human terms, it was magnificently right, and it has secured her position in history for all time. For Christopher Columbus was a man born and driven to discover a new world, and such a discovery was bound to bring glory, power, and wealth to the nation that made it. In fact, it made Isabel Spain the world's greatest power for a century and a half, and the savior of Catholic Europe in the reign of her great-grandson, Philip II. Isabel and the others who believed in Columbus could see in him a history maker, a man able to open up spiritual and material opportunities never known or imagined before. It was the man to whom they gave their blessing, far more than to his actually unfeasible project. Because it happened so often to her in her heroic, adventurous life, Queen Isabel of Spain, above all, understood how and why it is that fortune favors the brave. Columbus's expedition could never have reached the Orient. Yet in 1492, there was a commercially feasible way to reach the Orient from the Iberian Peninsula, a way that might well have forestalled him. The Portuguese were following that way along the coast of Africa. Just three months before Columbus finally received the patronage of Spain's Catholic monarchs, the Portuguese navigator Bartholomew Diaz had opened up that route by rounding the southern tip of the Dark Continent, which he first called the Cape of Storms. Just one more voyage under a resolute and persevering commander would have achieved all that Columbus hoped to accomplish by his enterprise. At the normal pace of Portuguese exploration, that voyage would have been undertaken in 1492. But King John II of Portugal was prostrated that year by the tragic death of his only son in a riding accident, as was his son's young wife, Isabel's daughter and namesake. King John II never sent another expedition toward India, though he began preparations for one shortly before he died in 1495. These preparations ceased at his death. Not until 1497, five years after Columbus sailed, did Vasco da Gama set off for India. He reached India in 1498, returning the next year, but by then, the new world Columbus had found was already beginning to match the allure of the Orient. Now to return to Columbus and his history-making voyage. His three ships gathered at Palos, whose names, even in this day of declining educational standards, every school child in the Western Hemisphere knows, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. It is not clear how they came to be customarily named in this order, from the smallest to the largest, but it is very appropriate. For Santa Maria ran aground on the coast of Haiti. Pinta lost her rudder three days out from Spain, and under Martin Alonso Pinzon deserted Columbus when he needed her most. But Nina, under Columbus's personal command, weathered two mighty storms in the winter North Atlantic to bring the news of the discovery of America to Europe in 1493, and later was the only ship in a squadron of four to survive a West Indian hurricane. A vessel to sing about, Samuel Elliott Morris 
Samuel er Elliot Morrison, seaman historian of the Age of Discovery, says, quote, one of the greatest little ships in the world's history. Without this quotation from Morrison, I'm sorry, with this quotation from Morrison, we have an opportunity to introduce Columbus's great biographer, who in 1941 personally sailed every mile of the route of Columbus's voyage and crowned his life and work by a magnificent two-volume history of the European discovery of America. In World War II, Morrison was asked by President Franklin Roosevelt to prepare a naval history of that war, which he did in no less than 14 superb volumes, including what I believe to be much the best history of the heroic campaign of the U.S. Marines on the Pacific Island of Guadalcanal, entitled The Struggle for Guadalcanal. Morrison was actually on Guadalcanal during the fighting and preserved many of the glimpses we have of that epic struggle. President Roosevelt gave Morrison the rank of admiral. I consider Samuel Elliott Morrison to be America's greatest historian. In September and October of 1492, Columbus was making his historic crossing of the Atlantic. By October 1st, he had sailed 1,800 miles. Columbus thought it had been more than 2,000 miles, but did not say so for fear of frightening his men, who were already growing restive because they had been so long out of sight of land. Now the winds picked up. During the next week, they sailed over 100 miles a day. Within a few days, Columbus observed flocks of birds of a kind they had not seen before, flying southwest. Columbus knew that the Portuguese had discovered the Azores Islands by following the flight of birds. He altered course to the west-southwest, ensuring that if he kept going, he would reach what would become the Bahamas rather than the coast of Florida. But he was still sure the land ahead must be Asia, the Orient. He had now come a full 3,000 miles, all with the wind astern. Columbus knew he could get home by riding before the westerly winds in the north. But his men knew nothing of this. They only knew they had been out of sight of land for a full month, longer than any other voyage in the history of the world up to that time. The crew demanded that he turn back and threatened mutiny if he did not. It was the crisis of the voyage. The date was October 10th. Columbus assembled the crew and told them, I had started out to find the Indies and would continue until I had accomplished that mission with the help of our Lord. His granite will prevailed. He made a deal with his men. They would sail on for three more days, by which time he expected to find land, and he would turn back if no land appeared. In fact, he was very close to land. Once more, fortune had favored the brave. God was close by. In just two days, Columbus would reach land. On the next day, October 11th, signs of nearby land were picked up from the sea, floating plants which were not seaweed, and a carved stick. The wind was blowing a gale, and the following sea was heavy. The sun set, and Columbus kept up all the sail his ships would carry while doubling the lookouts. Through the whistling dark, at 10 o'clock in the evening, according to Columbus's log, I thought I saw a light to the west, it looked like a little wax candle bobbing up and down. It was such an uncertain thing that I did not feel it was adequate proof of land. The wind still blew strongly. The white sails strained against the halyards. The moon cast its silver beams ahead of the ships into the dark unknown ahead. <clears throat> Let Admiral Morrison describe that climactic moment 
as only he can. His ships rush on, pitching, rolling, and throwing, throwing spray, white foam at their bows, and wakes reflecting the moon. Pinta is perhaps half a mile in the lead, Santa Maria on her port quarter, Nina on the other side. Now one, now another forges ahead. With the fourth glass of the night watch, the sands are running out of an era that began with the dawn of history. Not since the birth of Christ has there been a night so full of meaning for the human race. At 2 a.m., 12 October, Rodrigo de Triana, look out on the Pinta, sees something like a white cliff shining in the moonlight and sings out, Tierra, Tierra, land, land. Let us take note as we savor this magnificent piece of writing that Morrison was a Christian, which by no means all the historians of his time were. After sighting land October 12, 1492, Columbus shortened sail, turned to take the wind of beam, and stood off the unknown shore for the rest of the night. At dawn, he and the two Pinzon captains came ashore. They unfurled the banner Isabel and Fernando, displaying a large green cross with the letters F and Y for the Catholic sovereigns on the left and right sides of the cross. Columbus, now having earned his title of Admiral of the Ocean Sea, took possession of the island in the names of Isabel and Fernando and the Spain they ruled, and named it San Salvador, the island of the Savior. Later, this claim was extended to the whole of America, most of which still speak Spanish. Soon after his landing, the natives began to appear, naked except for loincloths, brown-skinned, wondering but friendly. The new world had been found by the man Queen Isabel the Catholic had chosen. Where were they? The argument has gone on for centuries. Somewhere in the Bahamas, certainly. The question is, which island? At first glance, it seems incredible that knowledge of the location of the most important geographical discovery in the history of the world could have been lost, but it was. The Bahamas had no natural resources. They were valueless except for the use that might be cruelly made of their peaceful and defenseless inhabitants for forced labor. Between that and the ravages of European diseases to which they had no natural resistance, the entire native population of the Bahamas was wiped out within a generation of Columbus's arrival. And the trickle of new settlers, American, African, and European, who slowly replaced them over the years, had no knowledge of where Columbus had landed. Once, once they had discovered and developed the greater and richer islands to the southward, the Spanish had no further interest in the Bahamas. Knowledge of the location of Columbus's San Salvador in the native tongue, Guanahani, was preserved for perhaps 40 years, then forgotten. Historians did not begin addressing themselves to the problem in a methodical way until the pioneering work of the Spaniard Navarrete in the 18th century. And since navigational considerations were vital to solving it, erudite naval officers soon involved themselves in the debate. Through the past two centuries, no less than nine different islands had been proposed as Columbus's first landing place. Admiral Morrison chose Watling's Island, which was actually renamed San Salvador in respect to his judgment. Many then regarded the case as close, but it was not. A brilliant reinterpretation of the evidence by Joseph Judge and Luis and Ethel Mardane, working with the help of computers, published in 1986 and aided by a careful retranslation of Columbus's log by Eugene Lyon, has provided almost conclusive evidence 
that Columbus's landfall was made on Samana Cay, 60 miles southeast of Watlings Island. The birds Columbus saw October 12th were presumably bound for it. From the Bahamas, Columbus sailed for and found Cuba, which he believed to be a peninsula of Asia. The appearance of the Indians did not disillusion him, because his writings show no sign that he knew the racial characteristics of Orientals. From Cuba, he proceeded to the great island of Hispaniola, now divided between the former French colony of Haiti and the former Spanish colony, now called the Dominican Republic. Columbus's life had now reached its climax with his world-changing discovery. From here on, it was all downhill for him, for he was above all an explorer, a beacon sent to show the way to new lands. By the terms of the agreement on his voyage, he was to administer the new lands he discovered in the names of Isabel and Fernando. But an administrator, he was not. Few great adventurers have been. In our times, Columbus has been bitterly attacked almost entirely because of his failures as an administrator. But above all, he was a seaman. And as a seaman, he was incomparable, except for perhaps for the Portuguese Ferdinand Magellan, whose seamanship I described in my September lecture. Consider Columbus's return to Europe in the stormy winter of 1493, one of the most dramatic moments in the whole history of the sea. Columbus had lost his flagship, the Santa Maria. The Pinta had temporarily disappeared after Martin Alonso Pinzon had gone off on his own to look for gold. Martin Alonso eventually reappeared and joined Columbus for the voyage home. On February 6, 1493, Nina picked up a strong westerly wind which drove her 200 miles in 24 hours, the fastest sailing of the entire voyage. For the next three days, the winds were lighter. Then on February 10th and 11th, the Nina made 150 miles. But on February 12th, she was struck by one of the terrible winter storms which had been the curse of the North Atlantic, Nicholas Montserrat's cruel sea from that day to this. All day, the wind blew at full gale. If the caravel had not been very sound and well-equipped, I fear we would have been lost, Columbus wrote in his log, adding that every mile's progress was made with great difficulty and in constant danger. All that night, Nina ran before the howling wind under bare poles, no sail set. The next day, the force of the wind abated somewhat, but the sea was worse. That night, the gale returned and the waves rose even higher breaking over the ship, which was now driven helplessly before the storm. During that fearful night, the lights of Pinta vanished from sight, and at dawn, she was nowhere to be seen. Columbus had no way of knowing whether she had survived or gone down. So far as he knew, only he remained to report his discovery to Europe. Only stout little Nina remained, with Columbus himself and, her in, and his invincibly loyal captain, Vicente Pinzon. In the wild gray morning, Columbus tells us, the wind became stronger and the crossing waves more terrible. I carried only a low mainsail so that the ship might escape some of the waves breaking over her and not sink. For six hours, the ordeal continued with no sign of relief. Columbus called his men together and they jointly vowed a pilgrimage to the great shrine of, our, shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Spain if they were spared. This shrine in central Spain was a special favorite of Isabel and Fernando. They had spent 
two full weeks there in June 1492, the year of the Great Voyage. Columbus fulfilled the vow on his way across Spain after his return. He baptized his first Indians there. When the Blessed Virgin Mary first appeared in the New World to the Indian convert, St. Juan Diego, she named herself Our Lady of Guadalupe. Still the tempest in 1493 continued, and all the men now vowed to go in procession in only their shirts to a church dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary in the first Christian land they reached if they were spared. Columbus feared that the knowledge of his epical discovery would be lost if his ship foundered, for it is most unlikely that he believed that Martin Alonso Pinzon and Pinta, a ship not much bigger than his own, could survive a storm that would sink him. So during that day of shrieking wind and crashing wave, he wrote a brief account of his discoveries, rolled it in wax paper, tied it securely, and put it in a barrel and threw the barrel into the sea. None of his men knew what was in it, and the barrel has never been found. After sunset, February 14th, the skies began to clear, though the seas were still high, and the next morning the Azores Islands, which belonged to Portugal, were sighted. The first inhabitants with whom he spoke told him, quote, that they had never seen such a storm as that which had prevailed for the past 15 days, and they wondered how he had escaped. The next day, half of Columbus's crew went to the nearest Marian shrine to fulfill their vow of a pilgrimage in their shirts to give thanks for their deliverance. Columbus and his men were Catholics above all. The crewmen were seized by the acting governor of the island in which they had landed. He tried to capture Columbus, too, but Columbus was armed and ready to defend himself. And the Portuguese then had no ship at the island. After three days, his sailors were released, and the following day, Nina departed with a fair wind. But Columbus still had 800 miles to go, and that winter was one of the worst of the century. On February 27th, Nina once more faced, quote, contrary winds, great waves, and a high sea. This time, she appears to have been closer to the storm center. In the evening of March 2nd, a cold front of the storm brought a violent squall which stripped every sail she was carrying off her mast. All the next day, she hurled eastward under bare poles before roaring northwest wind. Nevertheless, Columbus, whom Morrison calls the greatest dead reckoning navigator who ever lived, knew that he was approaching land. Just after sunset, quote, the waves came from two directions and the wind appeared to raise the ship into the air with the water from the sky and the lightning in every direction. But the wind was tearing at the clouds as well as at the waters so that occasionally the full moon shone through. Between the moon and the lightning, land was sighted dead ahead, high enough to mean cliffs. A rock-bound lee shore in a gale like this for a ship driven before the wind means certain death for every man aboard. Columbus faced it without flinching. His life and the knowledge of the discovery were both at stake. There is no more dramatic moment in the whole history of the sea. The wind had stripped every sail he was carrying off his mast two days before. He had just one small sail left, but that was all Christopher Columbus needed. Columbus and his men must get that one sail up the mast without its being shredded by the screaming wind as the other sails had been and tack the ship at a right angle 
so as to take the wind abeam. They must do it quickly, for the cliffs were close ahead. They must do it in the dark, except for the unearthly brilliance from the cloud-racked moon and the lightning bolts. The slightest air in turning into the monster waves rolling up from behind would swamp the ship and sink it like a stone. We may visualize Columbus and Vicente Pinzon side by side on the thundering deck, directing the men at the halyards as they raise their only remaining <coughs> sail, their last hope of life. Then, as the wild wind caught it with a snap that set hearts racing, Columbus going back to stand above the helmsman. The helmsman of a caravel could not see forward, only a little of the sky. He steered by feel and by orders from above. They could not do it in trough or on crest, but only on the upward roll when there was moonlight or lightning to show them the opportunity. The sail was drawing hard, adding its pressure to the pull on the helm. The tall Columbus, his once red hair bleached white by sun and strain, stood with feet braced, waiting for his moment. So far as he knew, he and his men alone bore the secret of the greatest geographical discovery of all time. It was Christopher Columbus's supreme moment. The lives and fate of him and all his men hung on what would happen in the next few minutes. Then his voice would have rung out, Helma Lee, ease her round to course south-southwest. Nina made the turn flawlessly and squared away on her new course. God protected us until daylight, Columbus wrote, but it was with infinite labor and fright. The Admiral of the Ocean Sea, the discover, discoverer of America, had not let storm and death cheat him of his victory. At sunrise, Columbus saw where he was. He had seen it while sailing for the Portuguese, the rock of Sintra off the mouth of the Tagus River, the entrance to Lisbon, the capital of Portugal. The fishermen of Cascais, a town at the mouth of the Tagus River, could not imagine how the little ship they saw sailing in had survived the fury of tempest just past. Spontaneously, they offered prayers of thanksgiving. Columbus had come through. Surely he, too, gave thanks to God. Columbus passed a tense nine days in Portugal in the power of the king who had rejected his enterprise and had once warred against Queen Isabel. But King John II was an honorable man. He praised Columbus for so important a discovery and let him go, though the Portuguese chronicler, Rui de Pina, tells us that at one moment he beat his breast in public, exclaiming, O man of little comprehension, why did you let slip an enterprise of such great importance? Allowed to leave Portugal in peace, Columbus sailed the Nina on the last leg of his history-making voyage, and at noon, March 15th, anchored at Palos, whence he had departed seven and a half months before. By a coincidence no novelist would dare invent, Pinta followed Nina into Palos on the same tide, arriving just an hour or two later. As Morrison caustically puts it, without waiting for Pinta's sails to be furled, Without reporting to the flagship, without so much as hailing his brother Vicente, Martin Alonso Pinzon had himself rowed ashore, went to his country home near Palos, crawled into bed, and died. <laughs> Columbus was now hailed all over Spain and Europe for what he had accomplished. There followed three more voyages of discovery in 1493, 1498, and 1502. On his first return to America in 1493, 
he discovered that the men he had left behind after the shipwreck of the Santa Maria had all been massacred by Indians. On his second return in 1498, his incapacities as an administrator became clear when his men went out of control, and Queen Isabel had to replace him as governor of the Spanish colony on Hispaniola. The man sent to replace him, Francisco de Bobadilla, arrested Columbus and put him in chains, which Isabel struck off with her own hands when he returned to Spain. Early in the summer of 1502, Columbus made his last voyage to America under orders to stay away from Hispaniola. A new governor, Ovando, had replaced Bobadilla, who was returning to Spain with an armada of 28 ships, carrying many of the Spanish gold hunters who had found the largest gold nugget to appear in the New World to date, worth 3,600 pesos, and called, with a bit of exaggeration, the Golden Table. Columbus cast his seaman's eye skyward and saw that a hurricane was making up. He had sailed more than enough in the Caribbean during the last 10 years to know just how dangerous these West Indian cyclones really are. We all know it now as well as Columbus did, for these storms are now given names and followed assiduously by aircraft and space satellites because they can do hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage in a few hours overwhelming all the resources of modern technology. Columbus warned Bobadilla's treasure fleet not to set out. Ovando had never seen a West Indian hurricane, and if Bobadilla had seen one, he had apparently forgotten what it was like, or would not heed the despised Columbus, even on the weather. The warning from the discoverer of America was summarily dismissed, and his request to enter the harbor summarily denied. What man ever born, Columbus cried in his journal, not excepting Job, would not have died of despair when in such weather, seeking safety for my son, brother, shipmates, and myself, we were forbidden the land and the harbors that I, by God's will and sweating blood, had won for Spain. The hurricane struck. This of June 30th, 1502, was one of the worst. But Christopher Columbus was still a match for any wind that blew. Every ship but one of the 28 in the returning flotilla of Bobadilla went to the bottom of the sea, along with Bobadilla himself, who had put Columbus in chains, the golden table, and most of the greedy gold hunters who had reflected robbery and rape on the helpless Indians in defiance of Columbus's orders. Off the thundering coast, as darkness fell, Columbus anchored his flagship so well that her anchors held all to the hurricane. On the ship Santiago, Columbus's brother Bartholomew seized command from her terrified and immobilized captain, pointed her seaward into the howling night, and survived with every man aboard. So did his other two ships. Three days later, they rejoined at a little harbor known only to Columbus. Perhaps someone aboard reflected that in such a storm, it was better to sail with the admiral of the ocean sea than with a golden table. Both Columbus and Queen Isabel were now approaching the end of their lives. Isabel died first in 1504, and he mourned her sincerely, for he knew that she had always believed in him. To his son, Columbus wrote, on hearing of her death, these imperishable words, the finest of all the many tributes paid to her. The most important thing is to commend lovingly and with much devotion the soul of the Queen, Our Lady, to God. 
Her life was always Catholic and holy and prompt in all things in his holy service. Because of this, we should believe that she is in holy glory and beyond the cares of this harsh and weary world. Two years later, Columbus himself died. Columbus had opened the new world to colonization, civilization, and, because it was Isabel Spain that sponsored the voyage, conversion to the true church. He died wearing the habit of a third order Franciscan, thinking himself a failure. But his success brought the light of Christ to millions of people and changed history forever.